I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome back to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the green notebook of Command Sergeant Major Bill Thetford, who retired from the Army after over 35 years of special operations experience. And if you've served in the special operations community, you know this man is a living legend. And I'll let Bill tell you about his career in the interview because you have to hear about what he's experienced from his mouth. It's, it's that impressive. In this episode, we spend a lot of time talking about the role of the senior non-commissioned officer in military organizations. And if you are in the military, you're still going to get a lot out of it because this episode is about how to advise someone who outranks you. And Bill shares his lessons and his grounded wisdom on this important topic. We recorded this interview back in August, and it dawned on us that when this episode airs, it will be on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And a lot's happened since we initially recorded this interview in the middle of August. And a lot of folks are struggling right now. So before we get started, I wanted to share something that I've been thinking about. And it stems from a passage I read by Callie Oettinger from Stephen Pressfield's website. And she wrote, war stories are about victory and defeat. And then they are followed by remembering, dissecting, learning from, and honoring. And then, as Shakespeare puts it, what is past becomes prologue. The earlier stories become opening acts for the future. You know, we give time a lot of credit. We tell our children that with time, they will get better skills, skills they're working on today. When we hit rocky patches of our relationship, our friends offer us consolation by telling us to give it time. We even say that time can heal. But in reality, time is indifferent. It's the opportunities that time provides us that allows us to reconcile and heal. As Dr. Nancy Sherman writes in her book, Stoic Warriors, It's not the passage of time itself that heals, but the kind of change of views that time makes possible. Ultimately, we choose what we do with our time, whether we seize opportunities to grow, heal, or transform as they emerge. You know, a lot of people are wrestling right now with the sacrifices that our service members have made over the last 20 years for a campaign that we may never be 100% sure if we made the world a better place. And I think that history and time will make that answer way more tangible than it is to us right now. You know, this weekend gives us an opportunity, though, to remember, to learn from, and to honor them, to reflect on those who made the ultimate sacrifice, and to reflect on a gift that was taken from the fallen, the gift of more time. You know, maybe this weekend, we could slow down a little bit and take a few minutes to think about the sacrifice others made so that we could have more time. And then we could ask ourselves what we're doing with that time. Are we, are we using it to address areas in our life where we are struggling? Or, or do we continue to hope that time will do the work for us? So let us use this anniversary of 9-11 to remember, 
to be grateful and to find meaning in this sacrifice that so many have made to defend our nation. And not only them, but also the sacrifices of our NATO allies and partners and our Afghan partners who fought alongside us. Let's make their memory the prologues to the stories we've yet to write. Anyways, I, I appreciate you hanging in with me while, while I share that with you. And, and I promise that this conversation with Bill Thetford will provide you with that opportunity for growth if you take advantage of the lessons he shares. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Bill Thetford. Hey, Joe, uh, good afternoon. Glad to be here and uh, looking forward to being a part of your Green Notebook podcast series. I'm really excited about this too, Bill. You know, when I set out to do this, you know, we, we started interviewing folks like General McChrystal, General Votel, General Miller, and, and I didn't want to just stick with like senior officers. And so I, I started asking around to who would be a great senior NCO or former senior NCO to have on the show. And, and time and time again, your name kept coming up. And so I'm really glad that you were able to make the time for me today and to kind of share your story and share your lessons with our listeners. So could you spend just a, a few minutes giving us a little bit uh, of information about your background? Yeah, sure, Joe. I began in the 2nd Ranger Battalion out in Fort Lewis, Washington. I came in the Army right out of high school and learned some discipline. And of course, the Rangers didn't disappoint me there. And while I was in uh, Tacoma, I met my wife. She's a Tacoma native. And earlier this year, we celebrated our 37th anniversary. So there's a couple of good things uh, out in Tacoma, the Ranger Battalion and, and my wife's hometown. Well, congratulations um, so, on the uh, wedding yeah. anniversary. Yeah, thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. She's a great lady. Well, so we, we did our time in, uh, in the Ranger Regiment, and then uh, I was assigned to the Mountain Ranger Camp in Dahlonega, Georgia, as a Ranger instructor. And that was, uh, that was a really good assignment for me because... You know, I learned how to evaluate people under stress and then provide counseling in tough conditions. So I enjoyed my time as a ranger instructor. And then when I finished up in Dahlonega, I went to assessment and selection for the special ops community. And I arrived to Fort Bragg in November of 1990. And so I served a total of 23 years on Fort Bragg. I served uh, 20 years with uh, the special mission unit here. And I held nearly all the NCO-related positions all the way up to and including the unit uh, CSM. And then as my time uh, kind of wound up at the unit, that's when General Votel took command of JSOC. And shortly after, he, you know, he selected me to be his senior enlisted leader with him in JSOC, and that was uh, mid-2011. And then I served in the, the JSOC senior enlisted position for three years. So in all, I like to say I was a member of Team Votel for eight years with duty with General Votel at JSOC and then SOCOM. And then finally, we both uh, wrapped up our careers at CENTCOM. Through my career, I deployed to Grenada, Somalia, of course, multiple tours to Iraq and Afghanistan through the GWAT years. And in the mid to late 90s, I spent a good deal of time in Bosnia as part of S4, the stabilization force. And now I feel very fortunate that I landed with a great company. I work for CACI Wexford. So I'm landed there after 38 years in uniform, and I continue to serve DOD, both the Defense Threat Reduction Agency and the SOF community. And I am surrounded by some great veterans on my new team. So life is good. Wow, that is a uh, that is a very impressive and, and serious resume. For folks that may not be familiar with with the officer NCO dynamic, could you describe like what that relationship is like and what it's been like for you? Sure. Yeah, I like to say that officers are like architects or scientists, and the NCOs, you know, we are the engineers, the frontline supervisors, and the shop foremans who get the job done. You know, the officers are in charge and they provide vision and set priorities for their units, while the NCOs are responsible to support and advise their officers and then effectively carry out their guidance and directions. That's a really great description, Bill. And, and as I look back over, you know, my career, I, I'm approaching year 18. You know, I think back to some of the best NCOs that I had the opportunity to work with. 
you know, guys like Sergeant Major Sam Rapp, uh, Sergeant Major Lavaris Jackson, Sergeant Kevin Harris, and and first Sergeant Brian Walker. And what I always found in that relationship was like they always spoke truth to power when it came to my good ideas. And so, you know, they were always able to just say, hey, sir, based off my experience, this is the way that your idea is going to kind of pan out. And what I found that was when I was able to lean on their experience, our organizations were so much stronger because of that. And so I really love that like the military does that. It, it pairs officers, you know, with somebody who literally has had muddy boots almost their entire career. I agree. And uh, you kind of named some really good NCOs there. So I'm, I'm not surprised you had a lot of success there, Joe. Quick story. One of the things when I was in command, I, I love this, is every time I would come up with a good idea that in actuality was a bad idea, Sam Rapp, when he was my first sergeant, he would say, you know, sir, you're the commander. You do what you want. And that was his code for uh, that's a horrible idea. And you're going to get a lot of people in trouble if you do that. So I you know, if you're listening, Sam, thank you so much <laughs> for using that code to keep me out of trouble. So we talked about kind of like where the rubber meets the road at, at the tactical level, but you continued on your military career and you became a senior enlisted advisor at the highest levels of the military. So how is that different from your previous roles? Well, you know, Joe, I saw my role at the upper level, the senior enlisted leader as uh, an advisor coach, mentor, role model, and strategic messenger for my commander. But that's not drastically different from my role when I was a junior or mid-level NCO, but really more of an evolution of my duties to match the increased level of responsibility for the senior officers that I partnered with. So really an evolution. That's a really great point. As I think about it, you know, at the tactical level, a lot of the NCO time is spent you know, just making sure that soldiers who are just coming into the army with a you know a lot less experience are, are adhering, you know, to regulations or are maintaining discipline. But at those levels, I mean, you are advising. You know, you can't focus on those those minor things anymore. You have to focus on the bigger picture. So, how did you approach what you paid attention to and what you ignored? And then, how did you figure out where you would invest your efforts? And then like what you would let somebody else handle. Sure. Um, well, my time and my focus, uh, first of all, has to align with the commander's priorities. And then that paired with what I assess are the needs of the unit and our people, just for my instincts. So you know, I tell folks, hey, don't focus too much on what is working well, but rather what are the issues that require some attention or, or maybe some adjustment? And at the same time, you have to be realistic with your time management and delegate responsibility to your trusted teammates, which usually for me were my fellow NCOs. So when you need, when you need help, you know, reach out and, and get somebody to help you because you can't be everywhere. Certainly, you want to spend time to recognize your high performers and, and all the hard work that the, the troops are engaged in. And at the same time, accept that you really needed to spot some issues or troubleshoot problems, find out what's going on, and then ultimately provide options back to the commander so he can get after it and provide best outcomes for the unit. So it is a balancing act for sure. You mentioned earlier when you were going through your biography that you were the, you know, you're part of Team Votel for eight years, which took you to JSOC, to SOCOM, and then to CENTCOM. So how did your approach change with those assignments? You know, I don't know that my approach changed much moving from JSOC, SOCOM, CENTCOM, but my challenge seemed to stem from adapting to much different types of commands and learning about the broader mission sets that each one of those uh, commands had. So whereas, you know, JSOC is this agile and fast-paced headquarters that to me kind of represents the ultimate hunting machine. And so I was really comfortable there as a soft operator. Once I got familiar with, you know, just the size and complexity of a three-star headquarters, you know, that took me some time. But, you know, I enjoyed the intense mission focus that JSOC has. You know, we call it the unblinking eye. And while I was in JSOC, that's where I also gained an appreciation for, you know, the broader interagency 
and how those different agencies relate to JSOCs and where you know you need that mutual support from each other to to get after the nation's missions. It's it's really important those relationships. So then after JSOC, uh, we went to SOCOM, and you know as you know, SOCOM has their Title Ten service-like responsibilities. So I needed to learn about that aspect of the command. And I remember the headquarters, you know, we dealt with issues from training accidents, like uh, military freefall incidents. You know, we had suicides. We had the Budget Control Act or sequestration that we needed to work through. And then uh, ultimately, one of our challenges that was really significant was the Women in Service Review. You know, the Secretary of Defense said, okay, the services and SOCOM, you've got to devise a plan to integrate women into your, what were combat arms that were previously career fields closed to women. And what the Women in Service Review kind of revealed and, and reinforced for me is that we have to trust our assessment and selection programs. You know, all the SOCOM components have their particular programs to find the right people for their organizations. And we prove that, you know, those courses, right, they find the right people. And we validated all of them. They all went through a validation process to make sure that, you know, every challenge that we put in front of a candidate, that it was mission relevant. And it wasn't just some gut check or, you know, the good old boy network. And we went through, you know, those validations with third party oversight and they all kind of stood up, you know, they were in fact mission relevant. So that was a, a big confidence, I think, to the force that, that we went through that. And then at SOCOM, you know, we also had responsibility for the preservation of the force and family, POTIF uh, efforts. And so, you know, the challenge there for General Boutel and I was kind of getting the message out to the force that, you know, we had these great resources available that would help take care of our troops and their families. And so, you know, the big so what was to get people to realize that it was okay to ask for help. You know, and General Botel and I would travel around, talk to all the different soft units, and we would use ourselves as examples and say, look, you know, in our respective uh, careers and families and our marriages, that there were bumps in the road. And you, you had to feel comfortable talking with different chaplains or psychologists and, and getting help. And it, it wasn't going to, you know, derail your career to do that. So that was something I felt was real important was our, our POTIF efforts, you know, and then CENTCOM, you know, and CENTCOM, as you know, is a, it is the war fighting combatant command. And since we were there between 2016 and 2019, there was a lot going on. And I remember traveling around with General Botel and sometimes on my own because our schedules wouldn't align. We're going throughout the Middle East and we're meeting with key leaders, both U.S. and our important international and coalition partners, you know, as well as visiting the troops and just kind of understanding what was going on, you know, at multiple levels, tactical, operational, strategic, which was real important. And then the other aspect of CENTCOM that I really enjoyed was you know, we had what we called the coalition village. So right across the street from CENTCOM is this other large building that houses our coalition partners. And that was, you know, that varied, but it was somewhere around 160, 170 people at any given time that represented, I think, somewhere around 50 different countries that were part of the coalition. And it was just really interesting to meet with them from time to time and understand, you know, their perspective on some of these really complex challenges. And I remember, uh, you know, one day I went over and I was talking to a group of uh, British troops and this young British NCO approached me and I asked him, hey, well, you know, what do you think about working in the coalition? And, you know, how do you like it? And he says, yeah, I like it a lot, Sergeant Major. He said, but I just wish that once in a while the U.S. would recognize that, you know, they're just part of the coalition, too. And so I talked to him a little bit about it and kind of dug into it. And, you know, the translation that we ultimately came to was that, you know, he kind of gave me this, hey, team America. You know, it'd be great if you would just be a partner once in a while and, and not always try to be the, the leader. And I thought uh, that was pretty significant coming from this you know, young British NCO. But that was uh, really uh, significant to me. And so, you know, what General Votel and I tried to do is just make our time with the coalition more of a priority. And General Votel spent a lot of time giving them briefings and updates, kind of telling them, hey, here's what's going well 
for the coalition. And, you know, oh, yeah, we still have these uh, challenges out there. And he often would invite members of the coalition to come give him and the, the headquarters different briefings. So you would hear all these different perspectives from, I mean, really around the world. And that was really, really insightful. And I, I learned a lot out of that. So overall, back to your original question, Joe, my approach as a senior enlisted leader was, you know, to spend my time with elements of the command that I felt I knew least about, which for me was typically the support folks and the enablers and our international partners. And then I had to, I had to kind of keep myself from kind of falling back and returning to my comfort zone, which for me would have been, you know, go hang out with the soft operators and the combat arms troops, because, you know, I know that part of it. And so, you know, spend some time with them, but not, not to overdo it. And, you know, I've heard people refer to kind of work in that way is, you know, you want to find your commander's blind spot so that nothing uh, sneaks up on them. And, and I think that's, that's really important as, you know, my mission, my role as the, the senior enlisted leader. I want to talk just a second about that last point you made. And I think it's something that leaders at all levels, you know, struggle with is that we have this natural gravitational pull to you know, where we feel comfortable. So, you know, in my example, like I'm a combat arms officer, I have an armor background. And so, you know, when I'm in an organization, like that's naturally where I want to go. But, you know, to be successful, like you have to integrate the logistics piece, the administration piece, the signals piece. And so I think that's a really great point that you bring up, Bill, is that, that we can't continue to go back to our comfort zone because those people, they know their jobs. You know, I think at the commander or even the senior enlisted level, you know, your job is to integrate all the pieces together to get the spear moving in, in the same direction, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. That's a good uh, way for any leader to approach, you know, a new assignment is to, you know, go learn something every day. Find something in your unit, your organization that might surprise you. So, Try not to let it surprise you. Try to get it in front of it. So that's a good topic for you. Hey, folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is a place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. And I want to talk about the relationship between you and General Votel. But first, again, like I'm just, I'm very fascinated about your career because you were literally like all over the place. You were both sides of the U.S. at Bragg and Lewis, but then you were also, you had a lot of assignments overseas. So I just want to know, like, what are one or two mistakes that you made early in your career that you would do differently if you would have had the chance to do it again? Oh, good, Joe. I'm glad you asked. You know, a couple of the mistakes that I kind of reflect on is when I was a new squadron CSM. So, you know, 05 level, battalion level CSM, you know, we're, it was a busy time. So, you know, we're going back and forth uh, to Iraq, uh, you know, periodically. And on our assignments, say, I want to think it was uh, maybe 2004, 5, 6, you know, our squadron plus our partners, all our attachments and some other teammates we had, you know, we lived in the green zone and it was like a series of 10 identical houses, these big villas from right along the uh, Tigris River on the southern end of the green zone. So we were kind of based in there. And one of the houses was sort of the, the common area. So we had some MWR stuff. We had a gym. And of course, the kitchen in this big house was the dining facility. And then each of the partner units, you know, would get their food and, you know, they had different 
rooms of this house to kind of make their dining room. And we we segregated everybody out just to give them some ownership to, you know, kind of clean up and, you know, haul out the trash and, and that thing. So out of necessity, we were segregated in our mess plan. Well, I think it was around 2007 or so, we moved. We picked up the whole task force, left the green zone, and we found this camp, big logistics camp, just west of Baghdad International Airport. And of course, you know, before we moved, our engineers went out there and refurbished some of these uh, warehouses and made living quarters and offices and our talk and whatnot. And then on this logistics site that became our new camp, there was a contract mess hall, just like you've seen uh, many times overseas, a functioning mess hall, pretty good. And, you know, you had the large dining room and then you had this smaller kind of breakout dining room. And so kind of out of habit, when we moved over there, I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll put my squadron guys in the smaller dining room. And then, you know, everybody else will just kind of congregate out in the big dining room. And we were there about a week and the JSOC command team came to to visit us, see how we were getting along. And that was General McChrystal and his uh, senior enlisted Sergeant Major Jody Nacy. And so I'm showing Jody Nacy around the compound and telling him how we got things set up and arranged. And when he sees how we've got the mess hall arranged, he stops me and he he says, you know, hey, Bill, um, this is not a good idea having the segregated uh, mess hall there. I said, well, what's up, Jody? He says, you know, your job as the senior enlisted is to build teams, build cohesion, you know, help remove barriers to that camaraderie that's that's really important. And when he said that, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I completely blew that. You know, I didn't have to segregate people. I just kind of did it. And I immediately saw his point. Now, of course, if you know Jody Nacy personally or by reputation, you'll know that, you know, Jody Nacy wasn't as delicate in his explanation to me when he told me I was uh, kind of doinked up. But anyway, <laughs> we, we, we got it fixed and, uh, and I, I learned a lot from it. And then, you know, about the same time in my career, you know, we're back home and we're in our training plan between deployments and we worked up our, you know, the 18 month training calendar. And we uh, came up with a draft and sent it downstairs to the team sergeants and the troop commanders and whatnot. And later that day, a team sergeant approached me and he goes, hey, hey Sergeant Major, you guys put the big squadron, um, you know, TDY training exercise right over the kids' Easter vacation, spring break from school. Like, aha, no. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we need to fix that. And, you know, from that time on, we would get ready to do the long range calendar. I would go online and look at all the school systems in and around the Fort Bragg area and figure out all their dates for their school year and kind of make footnotes on the training calendar to say, okay, we really don't want to go anywhere during this week or, you know, we're all going to miss our kids out of school. And that was really good because, you know, one of the things that that I learned uh, coming up through, you know, all the deployments of the last 20 years was that families know what they signed up for. They know there's going to be challenges and separation and guys are going to get injured and whatnot. But what they ask for is some predictability. And so that was an opportunity I had to provide predictability. But it took a young team sergeant with school age kids to kind of like bring that to my attention and get me to address it. And we did. And I think that was a good, uh, good way forward from there. I really appreciate that that last lesson you learned, Bill, because that's that's one of the things that I've struggled with, you know, throughout my career is not necessarily balancing, but you know, the constant shifting back and forth between choosing career decisions over family decisions, and especially when those two come into conflict. And so, I, I think as leaders, whenever we can, you know, just put the extra time and effort into getting out ahead of that. Like you said, like a sergeant major removes barriers to camaraderie. Like you can remove barriers to family friction, but by just putting that little bit of time and effort into identifying those things like you did of spring breaks, you know, first day of schools, you know, vacation, whatever, so that the people under us aren't having to deal with that themselves. Absolutely. And uh, those were a couple of good lessons learned that I had as a, as a young CSM that kind of stuck with me. So I'm, I'm glad you asked me those, uh, those questions, Joe. Thanks.
I, I am too. I am too. It's a great reminder as I get ready to command to, to continue to focus on that. Now, I want to shift a little bit back to you know, your relationship with General Votel. You said you guys were together for eight years. That, that's a really long time to be paired with somebody, correct? Yeah, it is. It's not common for uh, you know a senior enlisted and a commander to to have uh, those back to back assignments. But of course, you know that was not by accident. That's purely by General Votel, you know, and his prerogative as a commander to select his senior enlisted. So I'm pretty proud of that. And you know, General Votel likes to say that you know our eight years together is longer than the typical American marriage. So that's always worth uh, a little chuckle there. That is, and that's great. And, and I remember when General Miller got selected to be the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. The first call he made was to uh, Tim Matheny, asking him to come over there and do that mission with him, because having that person right there with you is so important. And so, the first question I ask is, how did you advise General Votel? Like, why do you think that relationship was so successful? Well, I think it, it really stems from that we have similar interests, values, and focus. In fact, you know, he and his wife, Michelle, are people that truly care about their troops and their families. I mean, it's, it really comes off to you very clear and very genuine at how they care about their people. So as the, you know, as the sergeant major being responsible for the people, having a command uh, team, uh, husband, wife like that was a really, really big help. In fact, uh, Michelle Votel and my wife, Allison, they also got along really well. And so with their relationship as strong as it was, along with General Votel and I, we really had this total command team that it made life really easy. It made going to work uh, enjoyable. And to watch Ali and Michelle Votel do some of the things that they did for the families was really encouraging and, and rewarding to watch what they could do for the families. The next thing in terms of our, you know, our relationship was that General Votel, he's a big advocate for you know, what he calls command and feedback. I mean, that's his leadership approach. And I represented one of his feedback mechanisms. So, you know, he entrusted me to serve as his eyes and his ears and to be his strategic messenger when we were apart. I could speak for him because General Votel always had time for me. You know, he invited me into all of his engagements and his meetings. So I understood his vision, his priorities, and the challenges that he was dealing with, you know, nearly on a day-to-day basis. And I think in the end, I earned his trust. And that's what ultimately makes a strong command team is that trust between uh, the commander and the senior enlisted leader. I would have to imagine that you both had disagreements at some point. So, I mean, did you have disagreements? And then, you know, what did you do if you weren't on the on the same sheet of music together? Fortunately, we never had any major disagreements. You know, some little things along the way, and I think that's natural. I actually think that's a good dynamic is to have some disagreements, but they weren't major. And I think that's because we talked often and he knew my perspective on the key topics because he always asked me. He always invited my feedback to him, always wanted to know my insight from my experience or, you know, just my gut instincts. So that steady communication was what kept us on the same page. And that's really important for a command team. You know, you can have uh, some disagreements and you can haggle over some issues, but, you know, when the two of you walk out of the office, you got to be one message, one voice. You don't want your subordinates to think that there's some daylight between the commander and the senior enlisted. That's that's never healthy. And, you know, ultimately, I just felt really fortunate that I had such a gifted, level-headed commander with me all that time. I mean, he worked harder than anyone. He was so admired by everyone around us that people worked hard for him. And it wasn't because they feared the taskmaster, but it was because nobody wanted to disappoint the guy, especially me. I mean, that's just the kind of leader General Votel is. You know, people try to emulate him. And to me, that's just a sign of a, a great leader. I think it's critical what you said about communication. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned uh, Sergeant Major Lavaris Jackson, and he wrote this article for the blog called The Command Sergeant Major's Place on the Battlefield for From the Green Notebook, wrote it a couple of years ago. 
he made the point there are like a thousand different places where a command sergeant major could be, but the trick is identifying those. And what he found was that through his experience is that communication between the commander and the senior enlisted advisor are so important because that's where the NCO really figures out where he or she needs to be because the dialogue is there. So Bill, I really appreciate you know you pointing that out as kind of like the key to the success of your relationship, which you know is also the key to success of any marriage as well, which would explain why why you beat the national US average. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks for that, Joe. But yeah, I mean, it truly was easy to be uh, you know, on the same page with General Votel because, you know, if, if my job was to tell the king he wasn't wearing any clothes, I mean, that just never happened because the guy was just so grounded that that was never an issue for us. Okay. So that brings me up to another question, which is, you know, sometimes we do have to tell the king he has no clothes or we have to be the person to deliver the bad news. Cause that's another like dynamic I've found in uh, you know, senior leader headquarters is that some people are just scared to go to the boss with bad news. And so that's another benefit, you know, that, that people have being in that front office, that inner circle is that, you know, we can be the conduit of that. So what did you learn about sharing bad news? Uh, it's all in the delivery. So, you know, if I'm delivering bad news to the commander, you know, the first thing I want to do is is bring some options and not just point out, hey, boss, we got a problem. You're not giving them a lot to work with. So if I'm delivering bad news to the commander, and, and many times it was to the chief of staff, because that's really important. That's an important ally for the senior enlisted in, in the headquarters is to get along well with the chief of staff. So bring something to their attention. And at the same time, bring some solutions, some options for them to work with. If I'm bringing bad news to say a subordinate, then you really have to know your people and find out what's going on. So prepare yourself beforehand on, on what is the issue. You know, provide honest and tactful advice and feedback. And sometimes, yeah, you gotta you gotta give some corrective guidance. And if possible, again, you know, offer people some options. If they really need to make a significant change to salvage their career, then try to offer them a path to redemption. Like, okay, we need to see you do these things, young sergeant, or whatever the case may be, in order to, you know, get your career back on track. And, you know, if they're willing to make those changes, then you can see them, as we like to say, you know, kind of soldier through it. But in the end, it's about, you know, the whole person concept and understanding the people that that are going through a tough time and offering them some some advice that will help them move forward. Yeah, that's another great point. You know, in our, our last episode of the podcast, you know, for our, our season opener of the third season, we had Kim Scott on. Kim Scott, I don't know if you've ever read any of her books, Bill, but she's the author of the book Radical Candor. And I would say that, you know, in Silicon Valley, she played both the role of officer and NCO over the course of her 20 plus year career. And one of the things that she argues in her book, Radical Candor, is that you can't have candor with other people and it go over well if they don't know that you care. And, you know, she says that, you know, you have to get to know your people. You have to have conversations. You have to know what motivates them, what gets them up in the morning. And so, so that way, like, when they know that you care and you have to bring them the bad news, they know it's not coming from a place of spite or malice that you generally care as a leader for them and that you're going to be there to help push them through, you know, whatever that humper valley may be. No, absolutely. In fact, uh, sounds like I need to find her book and, and give it a read. Thank you for that, Joe. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Both of her books just work in radical candor. I say they're like field manuals for navigating like office or you know unit dynamics. And again, and I think it's because she lived this, you know, much like we do in the military, she lived this in Silicon Valley for so long. The books aren't just, you know, somebody researching, sitting in a room by themselves. Like it's a mix of, you know, psychological research plus her experience dealing with people, which is so important. So going now to you specifically. I'm curious, as you look back on your military experience, what was something that you believe to be true about leadership early on 
in your career that proved to be false as you gained experience? Wow. Okay. You know, I don't recall any leadership traits that proved false or, or disappointed me, though there were some poor leaders that disappointed me. You know, I generally had strong leaders throughout my career. That's probably no surprise since I, you know, I grew up and spent so many years in the soft community. So they taught me the importance of leading by example, of role modeling, because if you lead by example and you're a positive role model, I think you're on your way to becoming an effective and, and trusted leader. And those leaders that could not or chose not to lead by example, those are the types of people I tended to keep my distance from. And so, you know, as, you, as a leader, you grow up and you, I like to say that you, know, you make notes about what parts of leadership you witnessed that went really well and that you appreciated. And then, you know, if you see a poor leader doing things and you kind of make a mental note and say, okay, I would never treat my people like that and then follow through with that and learn from it. That is really great advice. And I appreciate you sharing that. Another question I have for you is that, you know, when you were the senior enlisted advisor at JSOC, SOCOM and CENTCOM, you know, I've been around those units. I know what the travel schedule is like. And not only that, but like what a lot of people don't appreciate is that in a couple of those roles, like it's a seven day a week job, like the world just doesn't stop on the weekend. So you're constantly immersed in your job. And so I want to know, like in those assignments, how did you recharge your batteries? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great. I mean, you mentioned all the travel, Joe, but it's also, especially when uh, in JSOC and CENTCOM where you're crossing so many time zones that it really kind of wreaks havoc on on your sleep cycle and and everything else so you know for me a way to try to stay on track was to keep my pt up and i enjoy working out that's never been a challenge for me and so i would just try to find a way to train when i was traveling whether it was you know finding a gym or a nice running route or a lap pool you know just keep my PT going, keep that steady because it's it's important. And sometimes you, you don't have those assets, the gym or a nice place to run or a pool. So you got to be creative. And so I learned in a few hotels that if there's nowhere else to go, you can go in the stairwell and in about 30, 35 minutes, you can wear yourself out pretty good in the stairwell. So Sometimes you got to be creative in, in where you work out. But I just think that, you know, those workouts help you get your sleep cycle back on track and everything else. It's just, it's a good release. And then along with PT, you know, I like to read. In fact, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I have all Arthur Conan Doyle's novels on my Kindle. And, you know, if you're reading Sherlock Holmes, you've, you've got a pretty good escape from the normal, uh, you know, the routine of the GWAT or whatever organization you're in. And just have that escape to uh, kind of clear your mind. So I, I like that. And I like to read. I've got some leadership books that I've read. Uh, General Crystal's book, My Share of the Task, is a good one. You know, one of my favorites is uh, Admiral McRaven's Sea Stories. You know, Admiral McRaven, he's, uh, he's a pretty gifted writer. And I like history. And what I found for history is Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard, they have the Killing series. So they have written a series of books. They're historical but they make history come to life. So books like Killing Kennedy or Killing Lincoln, Killing Patton. So you get a good dose of history, but somehow these two have made it uh, really interesting to read. And then for mentoring, a good book that a, a female friend and colleague offered to me as we were doing our Women in Service review was called Athena Rising, Why Men Should Mentor Women. It's by Brad Johnson and, and David Smith. And it's a really good book. When we were kind of thrust into this idea of integrating women into soft, I recognized that because of my, you know, upbringing in all these male dominated, you know, units that I was a bit one dimensional. And so this book was a good way for me to kind of cross that professional threshold to, you know, to work uh, with women in, in an effective way. So that was, that was another good read. I appreciate you sharing those books. And like you, when I was constantly changing time zones, you know, I found that reading kind of would help slow my mind down from racing and help me get, you know, back on a sleep cycle. But for people who just don't really 
grasp what you're talking about now with changing time zones, just like real quick. And I, I don't know if you can, can you give a snapshot and you could just speak in time zones of how, <laughs> of what that would look like over like a two week period for you? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for like CENTCOM, when General Votel and I were in CENTCOM, you know, we, we tried to go into the theater once a month. And so those trips would be, you know, anywhere from a week to two weeks long, you know, multiple stops. And so, of course, you know, the hardest leg is, is just getting over there and adjusting to what was probably a six to eight hour time change. And then, you know, General Votel, he runs pretty hard. So you got to try to sleep on the plane because when you land, you know, it's a new work day over there. And so you can anticipate you're going to have a pretty full calendar going to meetings or General Votel would go off to a meeting and and I'd go down to where we could find some troops and I'd try to, you know, do some troop visits and kind of see what was on their mind. But they were long days. So, you you know, you learn to, to sleep when you can and then, you know, just try to stay focused and get through that first day on the ground in that new time zone. And then, you know, from there, you can kind of catch up and get your routine back. But it was never easy for me. That was, you know, for the three years that we were in CENTCOM, that kind of back and forth every month, that was an endurance challenge for sure. It wreaked havoc on my my sleep cycle as well. And I I started eating melatonin like there were Tic Tacs, which I'm sure is, is extremely healthy for you. So I, I appreciate, yeah. I appreciate you talking about the importance of physical fitness and reading in that. So making that jump from the tactical level to the operational strategic level and changing headquarters as much as you did over that decade long time period that you were faced with a lot of new and a lot of unfamiliar as a senior enlisted advisor. So how did you fill the knowledge gap? Uh, when you made these encounters? Yeah. You know, for me, it was just, I sought out advice from people who I knew were the experts, you know, the subject matter experts. And so, you know, it was just about, you know, not being too proud to ask people for help, right? That's key. Uh, And just, you know, swallow your pride and don't try to pretend like you know everything because you don't. And so, you know, go around and, and ask people questions And I think that most people, especially your subordinates, they're flattered when you come and ask them for advice or information on a subject that you might be a little unsure of. And it kind of goes back to that idea of, you know, spending time outside of your comfort zone. That's the only way you're going to be effective. It's it's really the only way you're going to be relevant. It's just to ask the right questions of the smart folks around you and appreciate the, you know, the insight that they can provide you instead of just trying to, you know, quietly figure it out on your own. So you don't, you know, you don't want to ask a stupid question. I mean, you can ask a stupid question, you know, frame it in the right way that uh, the person you're interacting with feels like, wow, he, he values my advice and my input. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's just too much you know, for me to learn as as quickly as we were moving from, like you say, headquarters to headquarters and different mission sets and different concerns, you know, it's, it's just a vast expanse that you're going to need some help dealing with it. Bill, now we're recording this episode in August, but this episode is going to air on September 11th. And this year is the, the 20th anniversary. And, you know, looking across your career, I know that the global war on terrorism, you know, essentially was the last 20 years of your military career. So, so a fairly significant part. So as we hit this particular anniversary, could you share some of your thoughts about it? Yeah, sure, Joe. You know, I think that because of recent events in Afghanistan, this will be a tough anniversary for our veterans and their families. You know, with so many raw emotions swirling around right now, it's, it's going to be hard on people. So I'm trying to focus on the men and women I served with, the camaraderie we built, and our many successes that we enjoyed during the last 20 years. And we had many successes, uh, so no one should dismiss those. In time, I hope there will be some type of formal review, maybe something similar to the Holloway Commission after Desert One, which, as you know, created JSOC. And I believe that formal review or commission is needed 
And that will help our nation learn from these past events and then truly appreciate all the blood and treasure we invested there. So my plan is to separate the politics from our service and sacrifice on September 11th and go from there. Yeah, Bill, I just want to say, I know our time has come to an end, but uh, in just the 45 minutes that we've talked today, I, I'm sold on you know the, all the advice I was given that I needed to talk to you for the podcast. I mean, this was a great interview full of valuable lessons that I know are not only going to help senior enlisted leaders or enlisted leaders, but are also going to help officers or anybody really who's in a leadership position. So thank you so much for taking time on a Sunday of all days and sitting down and talking to me. No, it's been uh, been my pleasure, Joe. And you know, when we started off, you you know, you mentioned General McChrystal, General Votel, General Miller as uh, previous folks that you have interviewed. And you know, for you now to say, hey, yeah, your name came up, and you know, so for you to call on me is it's very flattering. And and I appreciate you spending some time with me. I know you you have a family as well, Joe. So so thanks for the time, and thanks for what you do with these podcasts to kind of help uh, spread the knowledge around. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bill. Well, have a great week. And again, thank you so much for this. You got it. Good luck, Joe. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my